For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Proposition is the same as we've been talking about before in this Christian armor passage or this spiritual warfare passage, and it is that God wants you to stand firm in spiritual warfare. He said it several times in this passage. Stand firm. Don't give up the ground. Don't retreat. Don't fall down. Don't slip. But stand firm in spiritual warfare. Now notice, we're just going to look at verses 16 and 17 really here. But notice it starts with those words, in all circumstances. And it's introducing the last three pieces of the armor. We've already looked at the first three, the uh, being the belt and the breastplate and the shoes. Now those things were for long-range preparation. They were protection for a Roman soldier, and they were to never be taken off on the battlefield. Never. They were vital. But here we have a, a shield and a, and a helmet and a sword. Those things were to be kept in readiness, as it says. It, they were for use when the actual fighting began. And so that's why you have these words here, to take up, or and the other word is take. You're commanded to take these things. What are you to take up? Number one, take up the shield of faith. Sorry, I don't have PowerPoint today, but uh, I had some really cool slides showing you what, what does a Roman shield actually look like. So try to picture this in your mind. Uh, see, in, in battle, Roman soldiers would use the shield called the thurios, which uh, this is the one that Paul was referring to. He wasn't, they had other shields, but this shield was about uh, two and a half feet wide, roughly roughly the size of this little lectern here, uh, but about four feet high, you know, roughly about the size of this lectern here. It was designed to protect the entire body of the Roman soldier. If you keep in mind, during those days, people were typically smaller than they are today. The shield was made of a solid piece of wood, Sometimes they would cover the wood with uh, things like metal uh, or heavy oiled leather. And the soldiers who would carry these shields would, uh, in, in battle, usually it's the guys in the front row um, who would have that. And normally they, they would stand side by side with their, their shields together forming this, this long wall uh, that could be up to two kilometers long. And then what they would have is, I've been studying a lot about Roman armies and how they worked. It's really it's been a fun experience. But 
But they, what they would usually do is then they'd have the archers standing behind the wall of shields. Uh, the wall of shields would act as their protection, and then they were able to shoot their army, sh- uh, sorry, their arrows uh, at the enemy as they would be approaching them. And so anybody who was st- stood or crouched behind those shields would be protected then from uh, whatever the enemy would be shooting or throwing at them. And there's, a, there's an interesting action point that needs to be made from this text because the word you in English is a little ambiguous because you in English doesn't tell you is it just a, a one person or is it lots of people? Is it more than one? But in Greek, you is actually plural. <laughs> in other words, God is saying you, the church, are to take this armor up and work together and so here's here's my action point friends we the church don't fight alone we are a we we are plural we fight together just like roman soldiers did as i've been reading the rise and fall of the roman empire by gibbon uh you you, you'll notice the roman one of the things that made the roman empire uh, it, what it was, was the Roman army, and what made them so strong was they worked well together as a team. And so one of those things that made them working together as a team was their shields. And so they they could put up those shields, and they just basically could turn themselves into a tank. And so they, you know, the guys in the middle would have the shields up, all the guys in the front would have them down, Guys on the, all the guys on the sides would have them pointing to the sides. So they were basically invincible. The church is to fight together. But sadly, in our individualistic thinking, sometimes we, we think, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm out here all by myself, and that's dangerous. Don't do that. God doesn't call you to fight the spiritual warfare by yourself. This is plural. You're, you're to stand next to your brothers and sisters and expect them to be holding up the shield of faith next to you. That's the action point for you, my friends. So what is faith? Because it is not just any kind of shield. It is a shield of faith. Uh, and the faith here is, first of all, it's, it's not a body of Christian beliefs. It's not systematic theology. It's not biblical doctrine we're talking about here. This is just a basic trust in God. Trust in God is what is going to protect you. Faith in Christ is what appropriates your salvation, and it's something that is to continue on through your life. It's going to bring blessing and strength as you are trusting Christ for all of your daily provision and help. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, doesn't every person live by faith? And the answer is yes, every person lives by faith, but... Faith, my friends, is only as reliable and helpful as the object of your faith. See, everyone in the world has faith. The question is, what is your faith in? Christian faith is powerful and effective because the Christian's faith is in Jesus Christ. He's the object of the faith, and therefore, because Christ is infinitely powerful... Therefore, your faith and your protection will be absolutely dependable then, right? So Christian faith is something that never fails only because of where your faith lies. 
If it's placed in the one who never fails, then your faith never fails. But notice the text here tells us why we need a shield of faith. You need it. You desperately need this shield of faith. Yeah, it's heavy. For a Roman soldier, that thing, you know, it was a bit uncomfortable to carry around. But why do you need it? Well, notice what the text says. So that you are then able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. One commentator said this, quote, In New Testament times, the tips of arrows would often be wrapped in pieces of cloth that had been soaked in pitch. So just before the arrow was shot from the bow, the tip would be lit on fire and the flaming missile would be shot at the enemy troops. The pitch burned fiercely and on impact it would splatter burning bits for several feet, igniting anything flammable to its touch. In addition to piercing their bodies, it could inflict serious burns on enemy soldiers (laughs) and it would destroy their clothing and their gear. The most reliable protection against such flaming missiles was the shield, whose covering of metal or leather soaked in water would either deflect or extinguish the arrows. See, those flaming spiritual missiles, because they're not real arrows. Satan doesn't have a real bow and arrow he's shooting at you. Uh, Those things would be easily deflected by a shield. But Satan uses spiritual flaming missiles, which believers need to be protected from. You say, well, what are these, whatever they are, what is he throwing at you? Well, all he has is temptation. Because Satan can't make you do anything. You realize that. He doesn't have the authority nor the ability to make you do anything, so all he does is tempt you. He continually bombards God's children with temptations to to be immoral, to hate, to envy, to be covetous, proud, to doubt, to fear, to distrust, and all the other sins in the Bible. That's what he does. Satan's initial temptation, by the way, you remember to Adam and Eve? What did he do? He enticed them to doubt God. He didn't want them to trust in God. He didn't want them to take up the shield of faith. So he threw lies at them. That was the first of his flaming missiles. And he still uses the same one, by the way. And so every temptation, whether it's a direct temptation or an indirect temptation, is a temptation for us to doubt and distrust God. He doesn't want you to trust God. So the purpose of his missiles, then, is to cause believers to forsake their trust in God, to to drive a wedge between you and the Savior. And so the only way, my friends, for you then to extinguish Satan's flaming missiles of temptation is then to believe in God. Don't distrust him, but to believe him. Employ that shield of faith. That just means that in times of doubt, in uh, times when you are tempted toward depression, uh, you need to consciously lay hold of God's promises and then act on God's promises even when you don't feel like it. 
And there'll be plenty of those times when you don't feel like acting on God's promises. And you might be tempted to not believe in a good God. There'll be plenty of those. Satan will throw those at you. And so in times of temptation, you have to lay hold of God's power, and then you capitalize on it. He's given you what you need. Use it. But he's also given us a helmet of salvation. Notice verse 17. The helmet of salvation is mentioned here. But what is the helmet of salvation? Remember, Paul's chained next to a Roman soldier. Paul's in prison when he's writing these words. He's looking at the Roman soldier, giving him the gospel. And he's like, oh, you, got a, you, you have a helmet. Okay, how can I use that? So a helmet of salvation. But, but we need to think of a Roman helmet first. It was made of thick leather that would be covered in metal plates. Uh, some of them were heavy molded or, or beaten metal. They usually had cheek pieces coming down the sides, protecting the cheeks, protecting the face. What was the purpose of the helmet? The purpose of that helmet was to protect the head from being injured. Uh, particularly, it was very helpful against the broadsword that was commonly used in warfare. Uh, a a broadsword, by the way, you say, well, what's that? Well, that's just a large, one of those large two-handed double-edged swords that would be at least a meter long. Some of them uh, could be up to two meters long. And it would be carried by, uh, uh, often by the guys riding on the horses, the cavalrymen. And they would love to come along and, uh, you know, the head was was at a, at a very appropriate height to be swinging your sword as you're running past guys, right? So it, it would help them so that their skulls didn't get split open and they didn't lose their heads. And one commentator said this, quote, The fact that the helmet is related to salvation indicates that Satan's blows are directed at the believer's security and assurance in Christ. The two dangerous edges of Satan's spiritual broadsword are discouragement and doubt. To discourage us, he points to our failures, our sins, our unresolved problems, our poor health, and to whatever else seems negative in our lives in order to make us lose confidence in the love and the care of our Heavenly Father. End quote. Do you see what he's doing here? Now, some Christians insist that a believer's only responsibility is to let go and let God. You ever heard that? Let go and let God. Now, that sounds real good on the surface. But what do you mean by that? <laughs> if someone ever says that, just, just use tactics. What do you mean by that? See, true, the truly surrendered life is the life committed to aggressive, confrontive, and unreserved obedience to all of God's commands. Depend on God for everything and then not use His provision to do the other things He commands, by the way, is not dependence on God. That's actually presumption. That's dangerous. Christians are not onlookers to God's work. You, you just don't sit and do nothing. This is a command. You are to take up the armor. Now, it's a two-edged sword. 
it can cut both ways. You can say, what, uh, what's, what's the other edge? Well, the other edge of Satan's two-edged sword is doubt. He wants us to doubt. And that often brings discouragement to you if you do that. Doubts, you say doubts about what? Well, doubts about the truths of God, including doubt about your salvation in particular. That's one of the worst discouragements for a believer. How can you live if you don't know where you're going when you die? That's really hard. (laughs) And so if a believer doubts God's goodness, or if God is dependable, or if your relationship to God is uncertain, then you, you have no ground for hope. You have no protection for discouragement. You, you're open to his, his attack. And so the person who thinks he has nothing worthwhile to look forward to has actually no reason to fight. You don't have a reason to work. You, you don't have a reason to live responsibly. And so Satan's plan, my friend, is to cause you to doubt God's promises. He doesn't want you to think you're saved. He doesn't want you to believe in eternal security. And so some of my, let me just share some of my favorite verses that I I love in the Bible. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus believed in eternal security. He understands about this. He wants you to know that you have eternal life. See, in in the book of John, Jesus says this. John chapter 6, he said, All, how much, by the way? All that the Father gives me will come to me. He's talking about people, his sheep here. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. What great comfort. So, my friends, you know what that means? Absolutely no circumstance, no failure, nor sh- no shortcomings, and no sin can separate you from God. It can't cause you to be unsaved. <laughs> you don't go from having eternal life to then having no life. Those things don't cause you to be separated from God. God is not going to disown his children. They can't, uh, nor can any person, by the way, nor anything, including Satan, snatch you out of the Father's hand. Satan doesn't have that ability. Again, notice what Jesus says in John 10. In John 10, Jesus says this, Referring to his sheep, his people, he says, I give them, I'm in verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, this is God the Father, who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So what is this salvation that God is talking about here when he mentions the helmet of salvation. What is it? Well, let's talk about the three aspects of salvation 
and see if we can figure out which aspect of salvation is God talking about here when he says, take up the helmet of salvation. Well, the first aspect of salvation is what is called justification. Justification. Now, justification takes place when the sinner trusts in Christ, and then you're immediately saved from the penalty of your sin. What is the penalty of sin? Romans says the wages of sin is death. So this was accomplished the moment that that we trusted in Christ. And and by the way, that particular act of faith is never, ever repeated again. It's once for all. The second aspect of salvation is called sanctification. Sanctification. Now that, that involves our life here on earth, during which time you experience a measure of freedom in your life where you're... You're up and down, uh, but, but there's, your, your old master is no longer your master. <laughs> You're no longer dominated by the power of sin. Yes, sin is still there. And so that's why we're up and down. But you, you don't have to serve sin. We are no longer slaves to sin, but Romans 6 tells us you become a slave of God. And, of course, he is more powerful than sin. The third aspect, moving from justification to sanctification, and then number three is glorification. Glorification. This aspect of of salvation is something that's future for all of us because at the moment you're currently breathing, your heart's pumping blood, you're alive. So you haven't been glorified yet. But it will be for every Christian. One day, uh, you will be ultimately saved. And you will be saved forever from sin's presence. See, at justification, you're saved from the penalty. In sanctification, you're being saved from the power of sin in your life. But in glorification, you're saved from the presence of sin. No more is sin in you. Your flesh is gone. Oh, good news. So in this final aspect of salvation, um, that is the real strength here of the helmet. You say, why? Well, if we lose hope in the future promise of salvation, there can't be any security in the present then, can there? The helmet of salvation is that great hope of final salvation that that gives you the confidence and the assurance that your present struggle with Satan is is not going to last forever. You have assurance that your present struggle has has a a light at the end of the tunnel, if you will. And, And one day you will be victorious, ultimately victorious because of Christ. And so we're not in a race that we can lose. We're not in a warfare that we can ultimately lose. We have no purgatory to face in the future. You realize purgatory is not in the Bible. It's only in the Apocrypha. There is no such thing as purgatory. And there is no uncertain hope. According to a glorious verse in your Bible, Romans 8, verse 30, 
this is something that you can know, my friend. You, you know that whom God predestined, those are the same ones he's called. Whom he's called, he's justified. Whom he has justified, he, he has also glorified. What a glorious chain. There's not the single loss of a single soul from that first stage of predestination through justification to sanctification to glorification. No one is lost. And that is God's unbroken and unbreakable chain of salvation. I love that verse. Because glorification is a done deal in God's book. It's already accomplished for you. There is one more part of the armor here which God commands you to take up. And it is the sword of the Spirit. One moment, I will be back with something. Any of you who know me should not be surprised that I have one of these. Because I have a fetish for swords. Sharp, pointy things. (laughs) Now this is... This is a bit fancy for your typical Roman soldier here. Uh, but nevertheless, it, it's, a, it's a replica of a Roman sword. Now, the sword varied in length, so I don't have fancy PowerPoint slides, but at least I have the very thing here to show you today. Uh, but, it, but it ranged from 15 to 45 centimeters long. Now, I didn't measure this one. But it was the common sword that was carried by a Roman soldier. It was the primary weapon that they would use in hand-to-hand combats. Uh, they would carry it in the shield, until, or sorry, not the shield, but in their sheath on their side, attached to the belt, until it was needed. But it was always there ready to use. Feels good. But there's two ways for you to think about the sword of the Spirit. Uh, The preferred rendering here, by the way, indicates the Holy Spirit is the origin of the sword. Notice it is not just any sword, it is the sword of the Spirit. He's the origin of it. And so as the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit is the believer's resident truth teacher for us. He's the one who teaches us all things. He's the one who brings God's word to your remembrance. Isn't that what Jesus said? Listen to Jesus' words from John 14. He said, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I'm glad He did that. So what is this sword? It's not the one in my hand. That's a replica of a Roman soldier's sword. But the the Apostle Paul here states the sword of the Spirit is Scripture. Is, in case you didn't know what he's talking about, he tells you, right? What did he say? In verse 16, or sorry, 17, he says, The sword of the Spirit, you don't have to guess what it is, because it is the Word of God. Scripture, the Bible. Now, a, a sword can be used in two ways. It could be used defensively. It could used be offensively as well. So let, let me explain. Uh, if you think of it as a defensive weapon, it was capable of deflecting the blows of an opponent. So if you think of 
uh, an opponent coming at a Roman soldier, he could, he could use the sword to deflect, I don't know, spears or another sword or whatever the weapon might be. So unlike the shield, however, which gives a, a broad and a general protection here, the sword can deflect an attack only if it's handled skillfully and precisely. Right? You don't want just some blind guy waving a sword around randomly. You're still open to attack. It needs to use, be precise and skillfully. It must parry the enemy's weapon exactly where the thrust is made. If I swing high and he thrusts low, I'm dead. <laughs> right? And so when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness in Matthew 4, this is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus takes the word of God and he's precise, he's skillful. By the way, do you know what, what scripture Jesus quotes in Matthew 4? I, I found this really convicting when I preached through Matthew many years ago that uh, Jesus knows the book of Deuteronomy really well. Ooh, I was kind of convicted by that. Could I resist Satan using the book of Deuteronomy? How, how, many of you would, how many of you have verses memorized from the book of Deuteronomy? Ooh, that's convicting. But anyway, yeah, I don't think I would do well if, uh, on that one. But that's what Jesus does. Three times he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy to resist Satan... And you know how the story ends. He leaves. He gives up. Hopeless. I'm not going to beat Jesus. That's what he thinks. And so the Christian who does not know God's word well can't use it well. That's my point. <laughs> okay? Know the word of God. Know it well. Be skillful. Be precise. Satan will invariably find out where you're ignorant, where you're confused, and he's going to use that against you. He will. I mean, after all, he's been around for at least 6,000 years. That's a lot of birthdays he's celebrated. And uh, he knows you really well. He knows us well. So, my friend, Scripture is not a broadsword that you just wave indiscriminately hoping to hit something. But think of it as something smaller. It's more like a dagger that can be used with great precision. The Roman soldiers were able, with great practice and skill, to, to hit their mark with these swords. Well, the great author John Bunyan understood about the, the sword of the Spirit when he wrote in Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, there's a great story in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian actually comes up against Apollyon. You know Apollyon from the book of Revelation? Satan. And, and here's what John Bunyan, he says. He says, Apollyon began to wrestle with Christian and made him fall down. Knocked him to the ground. And as a result, Christian's sword flew out of his hand. And of course, in Pilgrim's Progress, the sword is the word of God. Then Apollyon said, I am sure of you now. And with that, he had almost pressed him to death, so that Christian began to despair of life. But as Apollyon was about to make his last blow, Christian reached out his hand for the sword, saying, Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. And with that, gave him a deadly thrust. 
which made him back up as one that had received a mortal wound. Christian perceived that he had given him a deadly wound, and he said this, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And with that, Apollyon spread forth his dragon's wings, and he flew away. So how did Christian resist Satan, or Apollyon? The sword of the Spirit. That's the Word of God. And so, it can be used defensively, but a sword can also be used offensively. It's actually capable of inflicting blows to an enemy. I think that's what Hebrews chapter 4 is getting at. Listen to Hebrews 4 verse 12. Because it says that the Word of God, notice the characteristics of the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Hmm, how many edges does the sword have? Two? It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Again, John Bunyan understood the, the importance and the power of the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. In, in another part of his wonderful book, The Pilgrim's Progress, he says, he says this, that Mr. Greatheart said to Mr. Valiant for truth, you have behaved worthily. Let me see your sword. So he showed it to him. When he had taken it into his hand, he looked at it, he said, Ah, it is a Jerusalem blade. Then said Mr. Valiant for truth, It is so. Let a man have one of these blades with a hand to wield it and skill to use it. And he may venture upon an angel with it. He need not fear its holding if he can but tell how to lay on Its edges will never blunt. It will cut flesh and bones and soul and spirit and all. It's an amazing sword. (laughs) Just say, wow. The sword of the Spirit is powerful. The Word of God is so powerful, the Bible tells us, it's able to transform you and other people, moving us from the realm of falsehood and darkness to truth and to light, moving us from the realm of sin and death to to someone who is now righteous and alive. It changes sadness into joy, despair into hope, stagnation into growth. It changes someone who who is childish and foolish into one who is wise. Someone who is a failure into someone who is success. So the Christian who misquotes and is confused about scriptural truths is not able to wield it skillfully. You you can't actually be a successful witness for Jesus Christ unless you know it and, and are trained in it. The effective teacher, preacher, and witness has to be ready in season and out of season, 2 Timothy 4 tells us. So, my friends, the more you know and understand Scripture then, the more you're going to be able to to march through Satan's strongholds, you're going to be able to lead people 
from Satan's domain into Christ's kingdom. So, the Bible tells us to take it up. Put it in your hand. Grasp a hold of it. Take it and use it. But how do we take the sword of the Spirit and use it? Great question. Glad you asked. Here's the first way you do it, my friends. By reading it. (laughs) You have to read the sword of the Spirit. Read the Bible. How can you live the Christian life without regularly reading God's Word? You're not going to be skillful. You'll be like one of those Roman soldiers, the, the rookie Roman soldiers who've never used one, right? Our minds cannot retain what we need to know. You have an inf- or, sorry, a finite mind that forgets more than you actually probably know. And so, what do you need? You need refreshment. Your mind needs to be refreshed. Your mind needs to be renewed in the Bible. So read it. Number two, you take up the sword by meditating on it. You know what Psalm 1 tells us? Psalm 1 verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. How do you prosper in this situation? You've got to be in the Word, meditating on it day and night. The third way you take up that sword of the Spirit is by memorization. Hopefully you know Psalm 119, verse 11. What does it tell you? It says, I have stored up your words, God. He's talking about God's words. You've stored them up. Where? In your heart, in your mind. Why? So you will not sin against God. Fourth, you can become mighty with the sword by studying it. Study it. Listen to what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. He said, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. How are you not going to be ashamed? Here's what he says. Rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly using the sword of the Spirit. Be precise. Be skillful. That's going to require study. Yeah, I know. It's going to require some brain sweat. There's going to be smoke coming out your ears. But it's well worth it. So that you can use it skillfully and precisely. I like the illustration that a guy named... Mr. Barker, H.P. Barker, gave a very graphic illustration that points out here the need for actually knowing and applying biblical truth to your life. Notice, notice it's both. It's not just the knowing, but it's being a doer of the word and applying it, uh, th- those glorious truths in your life. And here's what he says. As I looked out into the garden one day, I saw three things. So three things. Here they are. Number one, I saw a butterfly. The butterfly was beautiful, and it would alight on a flower, and then it would flutter to another flower, and then flutter and fly over to another flower, 
And it would only land for a second or two and just sit there and then it would move on. And it would touch as many lovely blossoms as it could, but derive absolutely no benefit from it. Then I watched a little longer out my window. Then along came a botanist, somebody who studies these plants. And the botanist had a big notebook under their arm and a great big magnifying glass. The botanist would lean over a certain flower and he would look for a very long time. And then he would write some notes in his notebook. And he was there for hours writing notes in his book. And then he, uh, he, would, he would close up his book and, stuck, stood, and, and put the notebook under his arm, tucked his magnifying glass in his pocket, and he walked away. The third thing I noticed was a bee, a little bee. But the bee would fly and land on the flower, and it would sink down deep into the flower, and it would extract all the nectar and the pollen that it could carry. It went in empty every time, and it came out full. (laughs) So, interesting illustration. So my question for you, friends, is, well, number one, what's the point of the illustration? Well, you need to think about which one are you. Are you a butterfly, a botanist, or a bee? I don't know if he meant to do this, but there are three bees. Three bees, a butterfly, a botanist, and a bee. But see, I think think the point of the illustration is that some Christians are kind of like the butterfly. You know, they just kind of... uh, fly around from Bible study to Bible study and from sermon to sermon and Bible conference to Bible conference and from this book to another book. And, 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 and there, there's people who are very busy doing a lot of reading and listening to a lot of sermons and that sort of thing. And, and, and that's all good and nice. And they get some nice feeling and some good ideas, but don't really seem to do anything with it. Please don't be that kind of a person. Then there's other people who are like the botanists. You know, they, they study Scripture very care, carefully. They can keep uh, a lot of notes in notebooks, might have the sermon outline sitting in their lap and have all the underlined parts filled out. And their Bible has all kinds of beautiful colors. And you can tell that they've been using their Bibles and making notes and so forth. They can gain a lot of information, but little truth. But let me encourage you to be like the bee. I think that's what, I'm pretty sure that's what his point was. Be like the bee. You go to the Bible to be taught by God. Hopefully you're growing in the knowledge of God. But hopefully you're not going away empty. Hopefully you're filled up. You know, it it just gets all over you, like the you know the bee going in the flower. You know, just it comes out everywhere with stuck stuff on him. It's just, it's everywhere. He's not empty. And so my encouragement to us is to be like the bee. So my friend, as we end this passage on spiritual warfare, you need to think about this. Have, well, number one, do you have God? (laughs) Because way back in verse 10, we, we learn you have to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Are you a Christian to start with? Because you don't have this armor if you're not even a Christian. Do you have God and His armor? If you don't, you're, 
you're what we what duck what duck hunters call a sitting duck. Do you know what a sitting duck is? Any of you been duck hunting? Okay, two of us. All right, so if you're a duck hunter and you want to put some duck meat on your plate for dinner, sitting ducks are easy to hit because they're just sitting there. But when they're flying like 100 kilometers an hour, they're really hard to hit. Very difficult to shoot them. Sitting ducks, very easy to get on your dinner plate. Don't be a sitting duck, right? You're a sitting duck for Satan if you don't have the armor. <laughs> and so what then, if you, if you are in God's army or, and you're attempting to, uh, to, to resist Satan, then what are you doing with that armor? Will you resolve to use the armor of God so that you can stand firm in spiritual warfare? May God enable you to do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for enabling us to resist our enemy, Satan. May we understand the importance of taking up this armor and using it and being resolved to, to fight together as a unit, as a church. May we not go out into the battle. <coughs> Excuse me. May we not go out into the battle alone, on our own. We could easily be defeated on our own, but we're thankful for our brothers and our sisters who fight alongside us. May they encourage us. May we fight together and resist Satan. Thank you for these, the, this glorious army you've put us into. We know we are in the Lord's army. We know that he is the, the winner. Uh, we know that Christ cannot be defeated. And we look forward to ultimate glorification one day. So may that uh, encourage us and protect our minds. Because we know, we know the ultimate end. So may we not succumb to Satan's doubts and his temptations. Uh, give us victory over Satan. May you be glorified as that happens. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.